So hello and welcome to My Dollarama's Top Picks. I'm Coco Green, armchair critic and aspiring academic with my co-host Abla Candeloft, film programmer, journalist, and researcher. In Top Picks, we discuss marginalization, resistance, and some of the isms in drama, documentary, mystery, and independent films. Now in its 11th year, My Die champions independent film and its use as a platform for underrepresented and oft ignored voices. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at My Dollarama, and if you like what we do, you can like us and leave a review at Apple Podcast. Short link is mydie.link forward slash Apple or Spotify, which is the same, but forward slash Spotify and support us with either a one-time or monthly donation at mydie.link slash donate. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at mydie.link forward slash subscribe. And today we are joined by a very special guest and Tanella Mercurio, counselor and psychotherapist to discuss this week's film, Crip Camp of 2020. Thank you very much, Sakura. Do you have any topics this week? Well, you know, it's funny. I actually forgot that I was going to do a short link. So I did send... Uh, you a link because my dad sent me this link to this documentary and it was funny because I had this whole conversation with my friend about what were the what was the favorite music for black people in the US and I was talking about the common misconception that most black people listen to rap and that's just not true it, even though I was wrong because I did think that one of our top uh, you, you know music was gospel music and it's not according to the survey that she sent me so um, at any rate, though, it was a documentary on gospel music, and I thought it was really well done because it was short, it was succinct, and it talked about the history from slavery and different black traditions of gospel music. So there isn't just one, there's a few different ones um, that are most popular. Mm -hmm. And I was going to create a short link for it, so I will. I, I'll probably try to do something like, uh, you know, a bit.ly link, so forward slash gospel doc. Let me see if I can make that. <laughs> but that was the only thing I watched this week, um, documentary wise, pretty busy one. Lovely. Thank you very much. Antonella, do you have any anything you'd like to flag this week? Um, not really. No, I did not. I mean, I'm ashamed to say that I've got really sort of addicted to a show that's really trashy, but I don't think this is the place for me to talk about trashy. We won't TV. judge. We won't. Ju We've talked about trashy. No, TV we'll, we'll judge, but I think it's fine to recommend that because I like soap operas myself. I don't. I don't see anything wrong as long as you know that it's fantasy and fun. It just becomes a problem when you try to live it out in real life. But you would know that because you're a psychotherapist. So, what's the? Uh, yeah, what have you been addicted to? Below deck. Oh, what's this? Below Deck is about the, the, the lives of people working in service in big, huge luxury yachts. And they, it's, you know, they, it's a reality show like the Desperate Housewives of New York. You know, this kind of, where they get into fights and they all hate each other. It's everything that's wrong in society. So I get angry at them, but at the same time, I'm really fascinated by the yacht life and, you know, they go to these beautiful places and it's what happens behind the scenes. So it's the people that the the attendants and the waitressing and the, the deckhand and how, and then they have this really rich, annoying clients who want to have luxury holiday for three days and judge me because I judge myself but it's the only thing the thing I love about it really is the scenery because they go to these amazing places in the Mediterranean and they eat amazing food and you know Caribbean as well 
So that's, I mean, that makes total sense that you're going to enjoy something like this, given the year that we've all had. Yes, yes. And it's very painful because I'm watching season four or three at the moment, and they are in the Mediterranean where I'm from, like in Italy. So I'm like, oh, my God, I want the ice cream, the, the food, the fish and the seaside. So, yeah. Now, I went to Italy a couple of years ago for my best friend's birthday, and there was this gelato place and I, you know, how you do the Google search and find where the top places are. And you would have never guessed it would be such an amazing place because of where it was located. And it, it was life changing. Like it got so bad. <laughs> I got, I went one day, I went twice. And the second day I got a family size and ate it in public. And I wasn't even embarrassed and I should have been, but I wasn't. It was so, and I was sick by the time I was halfway through, but I was like, it's my last day. I won't ever have it again. And man, that, yeah, that gelato, that wasn't a lie. Cause there's some things that you think are a gimmick about places. I feel the same way about Chicago pizza, right? Like you just think, ah, they're trying to lure you there, but it's real. The gelato was real. Yeah. It's an experience. It's a feeling. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Listen, I'm not judging because one of my favorite programs, one of the, my favorite things to watch at the moment has been my screensaver on my TV, which is just random shots, random photos from nice places in the world. So. Wait, the window thing? Are you watching? Oh, the wonders thing. Because there's this uh, app that my old boss sent me and it's uh, people's windows. So you can get a different view of seeing what people are looking at. And some are really nice because they live in, you know, near lakes or just very green pastures or that's, that's the reason i've been enjoying hinterland and that's in wales it's not exactly exotic but the simple shots <laughs> of just um welsh the welsh uh, uh hills is just so I like therapeutic the countryside no matter where it is yeah it's nice it is very nice to be fair even though i don't like hiking i like looking at it it's nice <laughs> exactly <laughs> hands the screensaver okay i'd like to flag a few things so I'd like to talk about The Empty Man, which is a 2020 American supernatural horror film. And it was written and directed by David Pryor. So it was released in 2020 and it was a bit released sort of under the radar. It didn't get much fanfare and it didn't get very good reviews. But it built a bit of a cult following since, since its release. And I think that might be tied to the fact that it's actually based on a graphic novel of the same name. And um, the graphic novel is by Cullen Bunn and Vanessa Ardell Ray. I'll talk about the film and then I'll quickly mention the graphic novel, which I haven't read, but just so you can understand uh, the link between the two. Basically, uh, the film was originally shot in 2017 and the theatrical release was in 2020. And it's meant to be the last release of uh, 20th Century Fox. So it received mixed reviews, as I said. I found it really strong as a as a horror film. So the basic premise is former detective James Lasombra works at a security store and he's grieving the death of his wife and their son who died in a car accident. He's also friends with uh, a woman called Nora whose daughter runs away, disappears. And he comes to her house when she calls him and they find a message written in blood on the bathroom wall saying the empty man made me do it. The empty man in question is the name given to local urban legend according to which you can summon the so-called empty man if you blow into a bottle 
on a bridge at night. So the idea is it's a bit cliche, but it's, you know, a group of local teens uh, have heard of this local legend and they try it out and they blow into a bottle and then one by one they disappear. Basically, in the graphic novel it's based on, the empty man is actually a disease that causes insanity and violence. So it's not actually a monster, so to speak, or a, a humanoid or anything that's tangible. And the government quarant uh, issues qu mandatory quarantines. So I assume this is why it's built up a bit of a cult following, given the current climate. What I thought it reminded me of in the, sen in the, the, cinematic, ad the cinematic adaptation, more specifically, reminded me of Ringu, the Japanese horror film, which is based on a novel. And it's really interesting because the, the horror film is very famous for its uh, last scene in which the ghostly figure of uh, Sadako, who's the, I guess, the monster of the film, crawls out of the TV. It's a very cinematic horror film. And yet the novel is not really a horror novel and the monster is a virus. It's something that's not tangible, that's not visible. So I thought the link between the two was, was really interesting. Anyway, this film I really recommend. It's got really, really good jump scares, stunning cinematography. It's really well produced. Uh, there's a very effective sense of dread just throughout the film. It is a bit long and I think there's a bit of a lull and maybe a few plot holes. So hence the middling reviews, but it is a very original film and I thought the the opening sequence was very very strong so there's a very lengthy very eerie opening sequence that takes place in Bhutan in the mountains in Bhutan and that sets the scene for this uh, uh, myth and legend of the uh, empty man. Not quite a recommendation it's more uh, a request for opinions I would love to know what people think of this so I love crime drama as you know and I found it really uh, just something really engaging and mind-numbing to watch. We have all the seasons of this French series called Spiral. I don't know if either of you have heard of it. In French, it's Engrenage. Have you heard of it? No, I've no? not heard of it's it. Got, I mean, it's really successful and it has very, very, very good reviews. If you go online, you will not find a negative review for it. Wait, what's it called in English? It's called again? Spiral. So it's so successful and um, respected that it's been compared to Breaking Bad and uh, The Wire. It's that, that kind of that kind of reputation it's gunned. I do not know how. Unbelievable. So we've been putting it off for a while because it's so long. There's, there are so many seasons to it. So we really wanted to give ourselves time to watch it. And it's so hammy and it's so badly shot. It's like jaw-droppingly amateurish, some of it. The camera, it, it's got those sequences where the camera just zooms really suddenly randomly over someone's face or like overhead and it doesn't make any sense and the dialogue's really expositional <laughs> and there are so many like really exposition expositional visual wait do you like this or not well, because i thought you okay did. i'm gonna come to what i make of it i'm uh, the reviews are that it's a really slick gritty uh urban drama that tackles everything from corruption to police violence to this and that and that's why it's been compared to the wire and it's unbelievable it's just in another universe to the wire so and i don't even like the wire i mean i respect it as a tv show but i couldn't get into it but to give you an idea there's this one character who's meant to be so all the characters are very archetypal they're like incredibly cliche versions of those characters of those the people they're meant to play so there's this one character who's meant to be 
the old disgruntled maverick ex-lawyer with a bit of a drink problem. The way he's played is the actor has like half his shirt hanging out his trousers. He's got sunglasses slightly askew on top of his nose. He's got piles of disordered paperwork in his office. And then in a few a few episodes later, they want to signal that he's trying to clean up his act. So he's like taking gulps from a water bottle willy nilly. So it's just so, yeah, ham fisted, in your face, unsubtle. But here's the thing. I'm carrying on with it because the the central plot is actually quite fun. It's quite engaging. It's the kind of thing I I actually do enjoy. I think the main central plot that runs through at least that first season is interesting enough to warrant uh, my, my, uh, my attention good cinematography good filmmaking this is not maybe uh, it improves later on i don't know so that's it for me for this week right on to crip camp so antonella would you like to tell us a bit more about about the film itself what it's about and why you chose to speak about it yes so crip camp is a netflix documentary that came out last year march 2020 and it's about the the rise in the beginning of the disability civil rights movement. It's titled Crip Camp because um, during from 1951 till until I think mid 70s, there was a summer camp that was designated just for people and kids with disabilities. Mm-hmm. With the, like it was like any other summer camp, but they had all accessible areas and all these kids with disability were able to meet. What happened is that in 1971, just a few years after Woodstock, which I think Woodstock was 1968 or 69. So just after Woodstock, during this sort of revolution, um, way like social experimentation, you know, all the 70s vibe yeah, you can get in the United States. <laughs> um, this group of kids ended up in this, ended up, chose to go to the summer camp with the desire as well to have a similar experience as Woodstock. And they met, they exchanged their experiences of having disabilities of all ranges. So it could have been learning disability, uh, mental disabilities or physical disability, diabetes, deaf and blind, and all of them together were able to share their experience of having a summer camp. And some of the people from this, some a group from the summer camp then became really close friends and then they started to form the disability civil rights movement. So they went on but thanks to that experience of having a summer camp altogether, they went on to becoming activists, but real activists. In fact, they have you seen the movie? Have you yeah, watched yeah. The movie? Um, they go on by demo- doing demonstrations. They had a sit-in for 28 days in, I believe, San Francisco. I think it was San Francisco. It was Berkeley. It was Berkeley, yes to change the law, the 504 mm-hmm. law, so that kids with disability were able to go to school and have an education. And they did a hunger strike, and then finally that law was changed. And 
it just depicts and shows the life of this activist. And that's why I wanted to bring it here because um, I have a disability myself. So, right. you know, for a person with disabilities to see a documentary, the, the thing is, okay, I, I get to that. The thing that I, because I watched it today again, I've, I've seen so much misrepresentations of people with disability. There isn't a single time when I see a movie or, or that I can remember in which I think, ah, yeah, that's me. Ah, yeah, that's really good. In this movie, Crip Camp, is the first time I feel really at ease of what I'm seeing. And it's a real portrayal of what it's like to have a disability and the, the desire of inclusion, accessibility, and being treated like humans, like in a normal way. So that's why I thought... It's a movie that needs to be spoken, um, seen and spoken about. And that's a documentary. So you're talking about you about yeah. documentaries specifically. You've not seen many documentaries portray people with a disability in the way this film has? No, I see a lot of document the documentaries I see they, they sometimes now I can't obviously now I can't think of any, but the ones I see, say, on the BBC or Channel 4, there's always a slight sort of gloominess and mm -hmm. tragedy, like, to it, you know? There's, I mean, to have a disability, it's, it's tough. It's really, really difficult. But in the Crip Camp, um, there's a sense that the revolution that they're doing is as valid as anyone else's revolution. You don't... You, you see... the equality in it is really represented the equality of of um placing people with disability next to any other person around yeah, yeah you know it, it certainly does and to be honest i was really it was really heartening to see them as agents of change basically and i hadn't realized i didn't know about this i didn't really know about this sort of well revolutionary movement i guess um so it's it's for that I think it's a really necessary watch really there there isn't much out there about this particular movement I mean not that I know I feel a bit clueless um, and I thought it was well, really I'm from interesting California when, so what, I think they, like I'm from California so yeah. the Bay Area and that's what we were taught is that in a in a kind of common sense kind of way so not in a school curriculum kind of way though that's why there were so many people with disabilities in the Bay Area because it was the heart of the disability rights movement, but I've never known the details that were shown in this movie. And something that they did say, uh, and I forget which one of the talking heads said it, that when people with disabilities are depicted, they're objects of fear, pity, or loathing. Mm -hmm. And that's just it. It's like, you're not, they're not shown living their life, even though disability is part of their life, right? It's not what they are, ex everything that they are all encompassing. And I did think of that film though, Shallow How. I don't know if you guys recall that film. Which one? Which one? Shallow Howl. Have you seen that one? Oh, yeah, it's of course. Yeah. Film. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So remember, and they did have a couple of characters as those brothers who make the film often do of people with disabilities, just like being characters. So it's, you don't even really talk about their disability. They're just characters in the story, right? Who mm -hmm. contribute something because they're either ridiculing somebody, the main character pointing out a full, you know, folly or a friend or just, you know, any supporting cast member. Yeah. And see, maybe that's why they don't stick out, because it's not about them being a disabled character, right? To bring some sort of self-awareness or serving as a 
like a magical Negro archetype, right? Like I'm going to help you become more self, you know, actualized and self-aware by my very presence. That's not what those characters do in that film. Yeah, I I watched. Um, have you heard of Broad City? Yeah. No. <laughs> we both Such... something different. No. It's so funny. It's, it's about two girls in their like mid twenties, say beginning of their thirties, living in New York City. And every so often they, you know, they, they live in New York City, they do odd jobs. And so often, obviously, they will encounter people. And within, you know, in the people they encounter, there are some people with disabilities. And something really funny happens. And I think it's a really good way. You don't really know, they don't stick out, the people with a the disability. They're just as annoying as any other person that can be in a comedy are about two young girls living in New York, you know, and I really appreciate that to see how you can also make fun of someone, whether they have a disability or not, because because they're equal. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, no, I do know what you mean. I mean, I think they tried to do something like that on the Family Guy, the cartoon, although it was received with mixed reviews. Do you know what episode I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I don't. I, I know Family Guy, but I don't know. So in this this episode, Chris fell in love with a girl at his school with Down syndrome. And he's just like, oh, she's so amazing. She's so wonderful. I know why they call her special now. But no, she was a monster. She was bossy and controlling. And that was the conclusion he came to. It's just like, you're as big a cow as everybody else. But people and the person who voiced the character, she actually liked what they did with the character. But it was very mixed reviews. So I didn't know whether I should like it or not. <laughs> I'll look for it. Yeah, no, it's really funny. But, you know, all, of the, all the episodes where Chris has a girlfriend, it always goes, you know, that's always a joke. He and Meg can't have healthy relationships because their parents are so toxic. And so um, it was, it's never meant to work out anyway. But it's, I think that was the idea behind the episode, right, to show that why does someone have to be extra special or perfect? Because, you know, that's mm-hmm. the other function to do so. Um, but, but thinking about Crip Camp, I mean, I think that was the other point. Do you want to talk more about that? Because that that was my take on it, that it's also, to me, the problem that people with disabilities aren't shown as activists leading the move, leading a, a rights movement, and there's so little is known about that, right? So thinking about yeah. how, yeah, just how that they followed that story, but then rooted it in the gen ed camp. Yeah. As a way to explore kind of like the genesis of political struggle is coming together and being able to share your experiences and to say okay well we have some common problems maybe that's something we can solve versus coming because lots of things can come out of camp I think I still I went to summer camp I think I only know one person yeah I'm positive I just still know one person from summer camp so um I wonder would you like to say something about that in terms of the activism and the depiction of people with disabilities as activists and leaders and change makers I, I think I, I I thought they were really lucky. I, I never had anything like that growing up, but they were really, I mean, I, I think it was great. They were showing how they would sit, uh, you know, on the table having, having debates and sharing their experiences of having disability, and that creates obviously a connection, a desire of changing things. And they were able to share all their experiences, maybe you know, how their parents um, related to them. Actually, another important thing is that a lot of the times the the, the 
the characters, the protagonists of the documentaries, their parents were the activists. They were the advocate, you know, they would advocate for their kids to go to school and to have a, you know, a more inclusive life. And then they took on their parents' uh, advocacy to then move on and actually allow that for other kids, you know, to go to school and have an education and to be able to have hospital care and all of that. And I know that in a lot of cases, when the system fails you, then you need to have a community around you, like whether it's a family member or some, you know, a neighborhood or the community. So I think that's quite important that in a lot of cases, those kids have parents who fought for them to go to school, to have an education, because that's where it starts from, is to have an education and be with other kids, you know? But I think, I mean, speaking of that, like that came up for me when I was looking at the social position of them, because even when you saw photos of the, and I can't remember the name of the organization they set up now in Berkeley, but it was very white, right? And I think even though it wasn't talked about their affluence, I think these were affluent people and they did not talk about it at all, which was very surprising. So even the woman, for example, who was going, um, who was homeschooled by her mother because she wasn't able to go and to the school it's like that was still at that time those neighborhoods were redlined neighborhoods right so that neighborhood she lived in was created to be a white neighborhood and then when she went to school you saw only one black girl in her classroom and she was not part of her circle we saw her four friends and the black girl was not in that group so even for her mother to have the resources to not have to work because if we think of black people at that time in new york the mothers were working so what would have happened to that child in a family where you have two working parents, there's no way someone could have stayed home to homeschool, homeschool her, which is how you get the Willowbrook, right? Like they left class yeah. and race totally out of that discussion. But it seems like that is how the children end up at Willowbrook because there was no one to provide that sort of care. Because even at the camp, um, it was certainly amazing how they talked about the expectation that everyone chipped in and helped with the caregiving. But what happens when you don't have a team of people to do that? That was a responsibility as a young um, one woman said that her parents did that for her. But if your parents have other children and jobs, there's just no way they can provide that care. I mean, and today I was raised in a time because my sister worked as a caregiver for a number of years. But that all came out of this movement, the requirement that state would provide support for you to have a caregiver. And before that, that's how they why they were institutionalized. And to leave that out, because it makes it seem like, oh, the families, I think that needs an explanation in this day and age, because one can get the impression that it's because their families didn't care or shame and guilt. But I think it was absolute material conditions. Like you just did not have the resource. It didn't exist like you have today. Um, And just imagine what the world would look like if they did not fight that. And to even have that sit in, they talked about that too. Like, what were you going to do with people who need medication? They need to be um, turned in the middle of the night. I mean, just all of the things that structurally as they kept reinforcing, it's not a problem with us. You do not provide the structure and resources for us to be independent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think race was, you know, a key factor in that because these families had, yeah, like you said, they were able to, to fight 
for their children. And and the ones who were profiled also had these great careers. I'm like, look, what's, what's that about? Is no one going to touch on how she had a master's degree when most people didn't have a bachelor's degree? We're going to talk about that at all, how that was possible? Because <laughs> we know lots of smart people don't get that. So let's talk about how she could afford to do that. Um, but You but, mean the one who, who had the degree, the MA in sexual? Yes, yes. The one who had the affair and she had that unnecessary right. surgery. It's awful. Yeah. She and her husband, they both had great jobs. He was a, what was he, a computer scientist again in the 70s. Who was a computer scientist in the 70s? But you yeah. don't know what their yeah, background yeah, yeah. was. That wasn't, they didn't make that obvious. It's obvious that was affluent. Yeah, affluent. Well, that was, exactly. No, but that's what I mean. I mean, it, they didn't, yeah. they didn't infer that they were from a disadvantaged background. So there's no reason to. No, but, but, but it's like, if you don't talk about race and class, it makes it seem like they were just these exceptionally brilliant people. Right. And what I'm arguing is that there were structures in place that allowed them to, for their brilliance to mean something. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's because all I'm they saying. Were so they I'm, I'm just, afford, yeah. right. That's just what I mean. But it's, it wasn't talked about at all, at all. So you could get, especially in the society we live in, which is very much a meritocracy. You just say like, Oh, like they, these are very smart, bright people who decided to give back and be part of a community. It's like, mm, <laughs> no, there's lots of smart, bright people who want to give back to the community. In fact, I just watched a story today about a woman who's like that, but homeless because she was underpaid with her master. Master, two master's degrees and it's like it's it's always down to that so I just wish they would have touched on that because I thought it was really um, important if we want to understand what people need to to thrive um, so it seems like there could be part two and three to this it re really should have been a series as opposed to just one documentary kind of like uh, what was that one you liked Apple the wild wild, 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 wild no it wasn't wild wild west it was wild wild country Yes, <laughs> I think this should have had six parts, honestly, because I Sheila. think each of uh, um, a lot of the characters here could a lot more could have been delved in into their background, into their story and even longer spent on Gen Ed. Right. And then more on um, what's happening today, because I'm yeah. sure the torch is being carried by other organizations. So, yeah, this needed to be a six part series. Well, that's exactly my question is what's happening today? What's the situation now and what has that movement led to? Well, that's a good question. Um, in terms of practical change on the ground, especially I'm thinking about in relation to, say, the Black Panthers, because there's this scene where uh, in the documentary where they show how the collaboration between the two movements. And we t we've talked at length during the various episodes of the podcasts about the legacy of the Black Panthers and the legacy of um, revolutionary movements and aspirational movements. and Well, different groups have their justice movements. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah there's all sorts so, of justice movements. Yeah. yeah, so what's the outcome of this particular justice movement now? I believe, I mean, they are in the States. I believe it is about just providing more accessibility and inclusion when wanting to study or care and support uh, social care. Um, I, I think it's really, we're still far away in terms of inclusion, but one of the main, main uh, Judith Human, for instance, she's worked as a civil, right movement, civil rights advocate with the Obama administration, mm. within the Obama administration. So I believe they're still working on creating more inclusion and accessibility for people with disability. And that includes better healthcare or educational support. Um, I know that she, I, she's wrote, she's written a book and they seem to be very sort of um, 
willing and with the desire of sharing stories of people with disabilities more and more, especially during the COVID, um, the lockdowns and how it affected people with disability. Mm. That's my understanding of it. Well, what about here? I mean, how do you think it affects the policies in, I'm guessing you're Italian and I shouldn't. Yeah, of course you did say because of the gelato. What am I saying? I'm not guessing here. Yes. So how do you think that affects policies in Italy and you're living in the UK? What do you think there's been an impact on policies? And then how do you think it's different in both those countries? Well, definitely in the UK, um, there's, there's a stronger policy and a better structure when it comes to disability. Um, I see that a lot of places now are more accessible. And when I say accessible, I don't just mean the ramp, the lift, but also questioning what's your disability, what do you need, how can we make it comfortable. Um, Although still, I believe that the experience of having a disability is still not heard. So I could have as many ramps as possible, you know, that can be, I can have lifts, I can have the chair I want, but then to hear the experience of having a disability, that's still quite, we're still far away. Also because every disability is different. So I don't use a wheelchair, I, and, but I can hear and I can see, but I can't go up the stairs, you know, everyone is different. So, but in but I must say, in the UK, there's a better structure. In Italy, there's a there's was meant to be a really good structure. There's not a good structure, but people are really willing to help. That's what I can say. The difference between the UK and Italy is that the structure is really failing. But I feel okay still with my disability. If I have to be well, honest. It's, is it because um, it's a more community-based country? It's a Mediterranean country, so people yeah. are frankly less individualistic. They live in bigger families. They. I mean, I can tell you, I can tell you this. When I, when I take a plane in England, uh, you have to say if you have a disability. So you're either one, two or three. So you're either, like, no, actually, either a S, a C or a R. That's how mm. they, they structure the way, that's how it is. So I call up the airline and I say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Sierra. Oh, okay, so you can't do this, you cannot do this. But then if, I, if, I do, if, I'm, if I'm in between a Sierra and a Charlie, mm-hmm. they, 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 can't, they can't work it out in, in the UK. They're like, oh, but you said you're a Sierra, and now you're saying that you're a Charlie, but then how are you going to And they, then there's a panic. There's a panic between the assistants and the flight attendants <sighs> and me trying to explain and then this guy doesn't want to touch me he doesn't want to carry me it's a mess yeah but when i'm in italy if i say i'm in between a charlie and a sierra oh you just tell us what what you need and we'll just do it and i like that you know because it makes me feel more human mm, mm. like okay, let me explain that i can walk a few steps but i just need a hand to get up from the from the seat and then if you could carry my luggage, but you don't need to treat me like a box and you just throw me <laughs> on the top of the wheelchair because I can walk to the, you know, it's, it's like in England, I'm boxed up in this Sierra Charlie Romeo thing. And I, there's, there's no way out. Whilst in Italy, they're more like, oh, just 
What do you need? What do you want? Well, you know what it reminds me of what Judy, you meant. I mean, she said lots of interesting things. I wrote down lots of her quotes, but something she said was like, when you're, when you grow up disabled, you're not considered a man or a woman, this sort of social exclusion and second classness and people responding to the disability as opposed to the person and what you're saying that's just exactly what her point is right so in one sense people responding to you saying like you're a person with agency you let us know right we're not going to look at the framework which is built to help us to make accommodations we're not wedded to that we're wedded to you Mm -hmm. versus someone looking specifically at okay let's do the tick box thing which means then they are you know uh kind of objectifying as a disability as opposed to a person beautifully said yeah. uh, so in terms of this movement because it's very um the documentary is based on a movement a us-based movement has that particular activism resonated with other movements across the world she said it towards the end when judy was talking about her work around the world and they showed photos of her it looked like she was in the philippines they may have labeled it but now i don't remember exactly so it seems like it is it did have a ripple effect of sort of there being collaboration. Yeah. See, that's why it needs to be a series. Yeah. That could have been a whole one in itself, right? The movement goes global. That could have been the episode, right? So we can get a sense of what was happening in other places. Not everywhere, of course, but just kind of key places where they made bigger strides. Because I'm sure there's got to be places doing better. And I'd be interested to know what, if there are some model countries, what are they doing and what does that look like? Exactly. Because, because, you know, when I did come here, I must say the first the first time I went to London and that struck me immediately and being from the Bay Area. Right. And I want to contextualize it. That's why I think I had that thought when I first came. That was the first question I thought when I went on the tube, I thought, wait a second. I at the time I moved to uh, Walthamstow. So I said, how do people with wheelchairs get around? And a few weeks into my stay, I met this woman or young woman from San Francisco and her brother had cerebral palsy and she worked in special education. Her brother was in a wheelchair. And that was her first question too. She said, you know, how do people in wheelchairs get around? I said, I don't know. And when we asked people, they looked at us like, why are you asking that? And we just thought it was so, it was just bizarre. And I don't know anybody. Well, I know someone now in a wheelchair, my cousin, but at the time I didn't. And so I was, it, it was just you're like, but I understand that we're not in wheelchairs, but don't you think about it? And nobody did. It just, it was, so I think it's how it can change your whole way of thinking, even when you yourself don't need those accommodations. Oh, yeah, like, definitely. ah, this should, this infrastructure is all wrong. And something that I often heard during that time was just, well, the buildings are old. It's like, okay, so, I mean, <laughs> what's that have to do with anything? I still didn't understand. But I think it was that. And then later, you know, um, uh, when I was there, uh, I guess 2017. Well, the point was I had a friend and she was in a wheelchair and we, w- we would meet up. She would have an awful time because her car was being fixed, mm-hmm. right, to be so that she could drive it. They were making some sort of change, but it, it was going to take about six months. So during this time, she was without a car and it was awful. She said the bus drivers would not even make people with buggies fold them up so that she could get on the bus. So whenever, Mm -hmm. no, it was awful. So whenever we met up, she would, yeah, that's what she said. And we would be late. And her brother worked for TFL and he would call and complain because he knew the protocols and they just weren't doing it. But it's like, yeah, you can make a complaint. But the point is you need to get somewhere now and, and not people treat you like trash for asking them to do what they're supposed to do. Like you shouldn't even have to do that. That's the point of it too. It's just like even the whole 
process was exhausting for her to have to point that out and get a bus driver to do that. And it didn't even always work. That's the thing. It took one time she was meeting up with me because she lived in North London and we were going to meet at Waterloo. I forget. I always forget the name of that place, but you know, the place in Waterloo. And yeah, it took her ages. Yeah. I had a, I had a bus accident three, four years ago. And I had to be on a wheelchair for eight months. And like, I just thought it, it was so difficult, so hard. Um, and I remember my friend was telling me, oh, you know, I mean, now that you're in a wheelchair, you can you could write about what it's like to be on a wheelchair, like your experience. And I thought, well, I know what it's like to be have disability, blah, blah, blah. And then I thought, actually, I have no idea. It's just, it was a life-changing experience for me as well. And like when you're on a wheel, when you, you have such an impairment, um, it, it makes a difference, but it's not. It's, it's the society that needs to adapt to the wheelchair yeah. as opposed to vice the other way around. That's, imp- that's important to keep in mind. But we have five minutes left. So uh, let's have a bit of, a, of a, our usual long-winded uh, outros, <laughs> conclusions. <laughs> Are they long-winded? I don't know. But yeah, we tend to that. then end up uh, finishing about half an hour after <laughs> this every time after car, car I never it. noticed seriously or are you joking no, I can't tell because you are yeah laughing. we end up segueing into skin conversations about skincare <laughs> I love that I would love to have a conversation about oh skincare. well you've come to the right you place <laughs> no I'm glad somebody gets it because people make it seem <laughs> like when you bring up skincare that you're you know just being vain or wasting money and it some people have said, oh, I didn't know you were like that. It's like, well, maybe you didn't know me. That stuff is important and it should be important to everybody. I mean, if you, we all work hard, why should we, why should we not have the pampering? I don't understand. It, make, it makes no sense. And it goes for everyone. In fact, years ago, I was going to a wedding and my friend's groomsman, he was like quickly putting some cuticle oil on his nail. And my friend was kind of chastising him for that. And he's just like, uh, that's what the ladies want. Nobody wants an ashy man. I said, you tell her because she acts like she don't know. So thank you. You know, who doesn't who doesn't want a man with nice hands, right? She acts like he was painting them. It's like, <laughs> calm down. That's what you want meant, right? It's like, I think all of us should be buffing and scrubbing and, you know, looking looking nice what's wrong with that having having manicured nails i don't understand but hey maybe maybe i grew up in a, in a very different family that's that's possible too and we could talk about skincare because that was also very judgy i might add <laughs> my only point is this i think we all waste our money on something so okay skincare may not be your thing although it should be because that's i think the right investment to make uh but it's, uh, you know, we always start money on something, but she gets all no. uppity and, oh, I can't believe you spend that much on that and it's overpriced. Yeah, everything's overpriced. <laughs> That's the point of capitalism. <laughs> they just gouge you. They find a way to prey on your insecurities and then they charge you an arm and a leg to but exactly, so you feel less you're insecure. So self-aware as well. <laughs> whatever okay but we can't talk about skin because i would like to know what your favorite products are if you've got something you can recommend because you know that's I, I do you use italian skincare that's something i know nothing about no i use super drug <laughs> i i use really cheap skincare because and i'll tell you why um a lot of the times a lot of the time do you know sally hughes yes she's a no. beauty journalist Sakara, <gasps> skincare specialist you know? No, yeah. I don't know her. 
she is the one she's she writes for the guardian and a lot of the times the big brands like Estee Lauder, L'Oreal they come up with products and they cost a lot of money and then two years down the line eventually the cheaper version of like the cheaper sort of the high street brand will take that product and sell it for because new new science will come out you know so first is Estee Lauder mm-hmm. and it costs say 75 pounds 100 pounds for a cream or something and then L'Oreal will make it cost 24 pounds and then Superdrug two years later 5.99 that's it <laughs> that's very that's true very good point or Aldi. okay well I, I wasn't expecting that so. <laughs> oh gosh I knew what I was trying to cut it off before she said that okay I this conversation definitely took went a direction I didn't want to go but you know what I think what we should do is find a documentary about the beauty yes. industry and then we can can bring in our gurus and our top picks for skincare. But, that yeah, exactly, fun. that's uh, in the pipeline. And useful. I will write that down. That's all we've got time for tonight. Thank you so much oh. for joining us, Antonella. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun. <laughs> you can, Great. as usual, tweet us, follow us, comment at my dialorama on Twitter, or just write to us via our website or any of the podcasting platforms. They'll have our contact details. And until then, have a very good fortnight. <laughs>